You are now tuned in to beyondthelabco.com. This is a podcast about exciting science that can help you change your life. If you want to live longer and feel healthier and happier, then you need factual information backed up by science. Covering health, wellness, aging, and innovation. Join your host, Dr. Cameron Jones, PhD, as he reviews some of the best research that hides in the journals and take control of your life today. Hello and welcome to today's episode. We're going to be focusing on mold and indoor air quality and its relationship to water damaged building interiors. Now, I'm particularly close to this topic because I'm an environmental microbiologist and in my day-to-day work and lab work and consulting, I help people diagnose if they have an indoor air quality problem and if this is due to mold. I'm also going to be covering in this episode some of the main ways that you can use to identify if you have a mold problem. We're also going to review some of the typical health effects of mold. Obviously, importantly, you need to solve your mold problem. And I often tell my clients that doing an indoor air quality and mold inspection, or at least doing a visual walkthrough and a review of these health effects and things to look out for will allow you to take control of your home. And this should hopefully lead to better health outcomes. In many cases, better insurance deliverables, especially if you need to call on your insurer to make repairs, for example, after a stormwater event affecting your building or similar. By being aware of your indoor air quality and what might be affected, this often prevents unnecessary or inappropriate works being done at your property, which in many cases simply defraud the consumer or the insurer. The whole point is bringing your home back to uh, a healthy state, especially if it has suffered water damage. And in many cases, this will immediately lead to an enhanced feeling of well-being. Fewer respiratory symptoms will be experienced and the like. I'm also going to be reviewing some interesting publications from the literature, which are making connections between pollution and mold related symptoms. And we're going to be looking at what you need to do to prove that your house has in fact been mold contaminated. If you need to make a claim against your builder or bring this to your attention of your property manager or landlord, or if you are experiencing what you think are mold-related symptoms in your own owned home, you may need to take control of the situation and engage persons to help you solve the moisture or water intrusion issues. So I hope this episode is going to give you a good overview of the relationship between water damage, mold, and indoor air quality, and We'll get on with it now. I think it's really important to stress that all of us are exposed to fungi in the air every time we breathe. So in a sense, our exposure pathway to mold, mold spores, 
uh, yeasts and bacteria is really a universal phenomena. However, sensitization and disease are not. And it's important to stress that there are really two ways in which fungi can cause problems to uh, our lungs. And that is when they act as aeroallergens or as pathogens that cause an acute infection. Sometimes fungi are capable of doing this together. Uh, obviously to cause infection, uh, the fungus has to be able to grow inside the body. Uh, and usually this is restricted to a particular location within the body, uh, although there are some types of dermal infections, but in the main um, infection by fungi is uh, most common in the lung. And certainly the types of uh, clients that I meet uh, in their homes when they're detailing their medical history tell me that often they have uh, lung complications or on uh, or are being treated for lung infections. Uh, in the main, there's a relatively small group of fungi that are capable of causing these lung infections. And these are mainly your aspergillus and penicillium, uh, as well as a, a range of yeasts as well. Um, aspergillus fumigatus is a potent spore forming fungus, and that's uh, also implicated in lung infections. At the same time, this concept of fungi being an allergen. Now, they can cause these respiratory problems like rhinitis and asthma, but when they act as an allergen, they rarely cause infection. And it is really the allergic response in the main to the spore which causes the problem. And the more common spore-forming fungi found in water-damaged buildings are your cladosporium, alternaria, and to a lesser extent, the infamous black mold, stachybotrys. So bear in mind that allergy is an inflammatory response and that this leads to an exaggerated immune response rather than uh, an infection. In this segment, I'd like to review some of the more common health complaints and symptoms that have been reported by uh, certainly my clients who have been exposed to uh, toxigenic mold. Uh, certainly one of the more common ones is, is irritation caused by the smell. Obviously when molds are growing on water damaged building elements, they do give off these characteristic odors. These are microbial volatile organic compounds and uh, uh, they can certainly be a, a severe irritant to persons. Uh, many of my clients complain of headaches, runny nose, having sinus or nasal congestion. Often people complain of watery eyes or a burning sensation in the eyes. Again, many people complain of having sore throat or hoarseness, maybe a cough or chest tightness, shortness of breath and wheezing. All of these are classic asthma type symptoms or uh, atopic asthma symptoms. Again, people can suffer from skin irritation as well through coming in contact with water damaged building elements or spore material or the mycelium uh, that is present uh, in a uh, uh, water damaged area or on books or clothing, which has become mold affected. 
So uh, uh, mucous membrane irritation, sometimes even hair loss uh, and various different uh, rashes I've certainly seen in my clients when I've gone into their homes to do indoor air quality and mold inspections. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, many people uh, report that they are uh, severely fatigued. Uh, oftentimes there is uh, an aspect of exhaustion. Um, mainly this is a physical symptom, but uh, I certainly uh, uh, anecdotally uh, clients of mine report that their uh, uh, state of mind uh, is also compromised after spending time in water damaged building environments. Nausea uh, and other gastrointestinal problems are uh, commonly reported as well as uh, a flu-like symptoms. Some people also report joint and muscular aches. And again, usually after people have been doing internet searches, they will report that they have a or self-reported cognitive dysfunction. In a sense, uh, they feel that they are, have memory problems and have difficulty concentrating. Now, this is all um, a set of quite specific symptoms for those who are suffering mold exposure. And sometimes it's hard for people who are not getting an allergic reaction to understand. So I hope this sort of uh, uh, overview um, uh, gives you a sense of the complexity of symptoms which can be experienced by people exposed to water damaged building uh, interiors. Obviously, when I speak to my medical practitioner friends, they're looking at upper airway issues that are affecting the nose, sinuses and throat, and they would differentially diagnose this as having a clinical effect like rhinitis, sinusitis or laryngitis. And it's well known that particulate matter and other irritants like uh, fungal allergens can all affect these organ systems. Again, medical doctors are interested as well with the bronchial system or the lungs. And often by the time uh, my clients become patients of the medical doctor, the clinical effects of bronchitis, asthma, bronchiolitis, uh, and even aspergillosis, um, they're the type of clinical effects that are seen. So it's a real uh, risk to persons and conjunctivitis and even allergic dermatitis that affect the skin are other sort of clinical effects of mold exposure that are regularly seen and reported by my clients. One of the questions that I get asked every day is how do I know if I've got a mold problem? Well, there's six things that you need to look for. Number one, visible water damage. Number two, presence of dampness. Number three, your history of leaks within the building that you spend most time in. Four, your history of any flood damage that may have occurred at your property, bearing in mind that flooding may be known or unknown and it can also occur as a bottom-up phenomena, that is coming from the ground up through your concrete slab, which may contain micro cracks. It could be laterally, for example, when rainwater or flood water, uh, or in fact, even runoff from garden beds uh, 
comes from the side towards your home, or it may be top down, whereas most commonly there'll be storm damage and rain or precipitation will enter through a break in your roof roofing. Obviously, number five is visible condensation. This can occur again when the window glass thickness is too thin and you get what's called the Coke can effect when you have heat indoors and cold temperatures outdoors, you will get condensation forming on the internal uh, pane of glass. And this can, of course, affect window sills and adjacent plasterboard walls. And of course, the number six reason why you know you're going to have a mold problem is once you can visibly see this on walls, floors or ceilings or items of personal property. Obviously, by this stage, conditions have been favourable for mould to grow inside your home and it's now time to do something about it to minimise the adverse health risks to you and your family. In this part of today's podcast, I want to review a fascinating paper that came out in late 2017 in the journal Pediatric Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism. And this particular paper focuses on a fascinating relationship between pollution, especially outdoor pollution with particulate matter of size less than 10 microns. And uh, 10 microns is 0.001 of a centimetre. And obviously the outdoor air is made up of a whole lot of dusts and debris uh, in cities, certainly diesel particulates, uh, pollen, and also various different bacteria, yeast and fungi, including their spores are commonly found along with fibers and uh, a lot of uh, organic and inorganic particulates, um, which make up our air. And what this paper is focusing on is the relationship between this particulate matter and especially different types of fungi and bacteria and their correlation with the uh, presence of type 1 diabetes in children and adolescents. So we all know and can understand that there is likely to be a correlation between different molds and bacteria present inside, uh, for example, water damaged buildings and uh, uh, leading to uh, irritation or a respiratory uh, problem. But this focus, this paper is focusing on the relationship between particulate matter and uh, the onset of diabetes in uh, uh, children and adolescents. And to give you an overview of uh, the impact of this particular disease, According to the World Health Organization, the number of people with diabetes rose from 108 million in 1980 to over 420 million people by 2014. So basically, the uh, study was done in Poland, and they've observed that over the last 25 years, that the increase in type 1 diabetes has increased by over four times. So... This rising trend uh, in not just Poland, but many other countries throughout the world is increasingly looking at the impact of environmental factors that uh, are potentially correlated with the clinical manifestation of uh, diabetes in people who, of course, are genetically predisposed 
to suffering from this. So it's not just particulate matter, which is the causative uh, uh, reason for diabetes. And there are many chemical factors, including dyes, preservatives, uh, food that's been stored in plastic containers containing bisphenol A is a well-known factor in uh, 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 diabetes. But um, it's really important that we look at uh, other uh, triggers for diabetes and certainly this type of publication which focuses on the relationship of uh, mold fungi and their spores and different types of bacteria along with what we know about uh, viruses that can also trigger diabetes is, is really uh, important to be aware of. So we of course understand that um, these toxic substances in the air are to some extent dose dependent uh, but it's really important to focus our attention on what we can do to minimize our exposure to these risk factors. And the aim of this study, as I said, was to look at whether or not on a population basis, there was any correlation between the outdoor air pollution, various different types of fungi, and the development of diabetes in a uh, group of children. So what they did is that they looked at the population statistics over 2015 and 16. What they did is they collected air samples of uh, the air to petri plates and then they grew these petri plates to see what fungi and bacteria they could isolate from this. And what they discovered was uh, a, a dominance of a couple of different types of fungi, including Aspergillus niger, Penicillium, Chrysosporium, Aspergillus flavus, and also uh, yeast fungi called Rhodotorula, which is a common uh, fungus often found in the showers of uh, people's homes, where it grows with a characteristic orange or red colored bloom, often on the tiles. So obviously, because researchers are constantly looking at what factors can damage pancreatic cells, the issue of air pollution, especially in larger cities, is quite a significant uh, uh, opportunity to see whether there is a cause and effect relationship. And this particular paper certainly shows that there is a strong correlation between the particulate matter in the air and the Pre, uh, uh, um, development of diabetes in a sample population. So uh, this is really important to know, although the mechanisms that lead to the damage of the pancreatic uh, islet cells is not properly known, suffice to say that this study uh, certainly suggests that outdoor air pollution and in turn the presence of these particular uh, yeast and uh, mold spores it could certainly trigger the onset of type 1 diabetes. And uh, we'll review some other more common uh, impacts on respiratory health caused by mold uh, in the next component of this podcast. Now, how do you go about proving that you do have an indoor air quality or mold problem at your particular building? or home or office. Well, obviously you need to have this area or building tested for the presence of mold. 
But how exactly do you do that? Obviously, a search of the internet will reveal many persons who claim to be able to perform an on-site inspection or do a water damage inspection, but it's fundamental to uh, ask questions when you call various different service providers and ensure that they're going to test every single room of the property, the roof void and the subfloor, and as required, sometimes inside wall cavities, because it's not sufficient to take a single sample from a home or even one or two samples simply because a home contains multiple rooms and how individuals move about the property has a huge impact on what air they breathe and in a sense the dose dependence between their exposure to potentially mold contaminated air and the resultant impact of uh, adverse health. So it's really important that anyone coming to do an indoor air quality and mold inspection uses a combination of at least two to three different methods to work out whether or not you do or don't have a mold problem. I think it's important to stress that you mustn't rely on free inspections. The reason I'm not an advocate of free inspections is that in a sense, they are just a visual walkthrough of the property, but without carrying out what are known as quantitative tests or testing, which provides numerical evidence, you're not going to really know anything more than if you'd walked around your own property yourself. Again, I think it's unfortunate that many persons who provide free or very cheap on-site mould inspections rely only on moisture testing. Whilst it's certainly true that moisture is required in order for mould to grow, it's mandatory that you work out the type of mould that's present and the concentration of mould and simply measuring dampness or inferring that certain areas or building elements might be damp is not sufficient to prove that a home has a mold problem. So my checklist for how you prove that there's a mold problem in a particular building or room, you must test for the particulate matter in the air. And earlier in this podcast, we reviewed some of the emerging uh, literature linking exposure to particulate matter and the onset of type 1 diabetes in children and adolescents. So it's necessary to have a measure of the indoor particulate matter levels versus the outdoor levels. Number two, we also need to measure the spores in the air to allow us to quantify the total number and this then is expressed as uh, spores per cubic meter of air. And according to the standard for spore traps, which is the method used to measure spores in the air, we'll also be able to work out the different types of fungi that are there, as well as see dust and debris, pollen and fibers, man-made, as well as organic, as well as insulation and building debris. So it's really important to have that microscopic evidence as well. Number three, of course, any visible mold 
can be uh, sampled using swabs to petri plate or tape lifts for microscopy or direct press plates, often called Rodak plates, which allow for these microorganisms to be cultured back at the lab. And again, using classical microbiology, it's possible to then make a comparison between the location of presumed moisture damage or activity in the property and exactly what molds or bacteria are able to be grown. Now, there are a range of do-it-yourself home mold test kits. Certainly, we're an advocate of viable petri plate testing, and this is one thing which uh, you can do. Obviously, any remedial works uh, covered by insurance really need to have a valid post-remediation uh, certificate, which essentially proves that any contamination that existed before remediation has been successfully dealt with. So although post-remediation verification testing is not always uh, 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 known, certainly for any insurance-related claim uh, through most of the insurers in Australia, they will require the remediator to obtain a PRV to prove that their work was successful. So similarly, if you as the homeowner are paying for mold remediation, it's in your interests to get a document testing the indoor air quality and or surfaces that have been remediated to prove that in fact there has been a change after the works have been done. Bear in mind that there is a uh, well-developed US standard for mold remediation and there is an Australian guideline as well as a plethora of other expert documents in use in various countries. So together, the methods of mold remediation as well as those methods used to measure or quantify suspect rooms or buildings for mold are well defined and articulated. So it's best to follow the standards and guidelines and get a robust measure of your indoor air quality. In summary, I'd like to review some of the typical health effects of mold that I've covered in this episode. So obviously you're going to be on the lookout for upper or lower respiratory tract symptoms like a wheeze, a cough, runny nose, or uh, evidence of asthma or what is known as adult onset asthma or atopic asthma. Obviously, any type of lung inflammation uh, may be a result of an immune reaction caused by breathing in the spores or particulate matter containing some sort of toxic uh, cell wall coating, which elicits either a direct cough reflex or may stimulate the immune system due to a sensitization effect. You should, of course, be on the lookout for uh, aspects of cognitive dysfunction. Now, this is not a well understood uh, area of the health impacts of mold, but it is increasingly being diagnosed, certainly by my medical colleagues. You should be looking out for acute infection, such as pneumonia or in the worst case, aspergillosis. 
So these are the typical health effects caused by mold. And the number one way of solving these is to reduce contact with the mold source. And to do this, you need to reduce moisture and remove the contaminated materials. All of the standards and guidelines published throughout the literature state that source removal is the number one method to control mold, along with reducing moisture. This unwanted moisture or hidden moisture must also be solved at the same time. And together, this will lead to a reduction in the probability of persons suffering acute effects caused by mold and unwanted exposure to particulates. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of beyondthelabco.com with your host, Dr. Cameron Jones, PhD. If you liked this episode, please leave a review and subscribe for more great content. And to stay up to date, visit at beyondthelabco.com and we'll catch you next time.